Thank you, Judy, uh, Harry. Great, great surprise started this morning at three o'clock. I woke up, couldn't talk, had chills and fever, and I said, "Oh my God, what a time to do this!" Uh, here, I gotta talk. I, I gotta talk. What do I do now? So I said, "Well, first thing you need to do is go back to sleep." <laughs> you know? and, and the second thing to do is have in mind what you're going to do when your voice breaks and you can't stand up here anymore. And then I thought of Judy. And I thought of Harry. And then they gave me a great surprise this morning. They brought Harry brought his mother and his aunt here, Jane and Betty. Betty and Jane, stand up, will you please? These are some... These are some great, great people, I'll tell you. They have helped in, in Judy's and Harry's first year. In fact, they had a, they had a anniversary last week, wasn't it, Judy? Something like that. They had a year of marriage, and I couldn't ask for a better son-in-law. I really couldn't. I like the daughter, too. She's okay. Tell you about that daughter, a little story before we get into this thing. Uh, she came to live with me in St. Louis at 10 years of age. And I'd already met Paul Keebler by that time in St. Louis. You can't be in St. Louis AA unless you meet Paul Keebler. There's just no way you can do it. And, you know, I, you would think with about 13 years of sobriety, I would really be within the program of Alcoholics Anonymous at that time. And Judy kept coming in and stumbling up the stairs, thinking I wouldn't hear her, you know, and kept doing all things we alcoholics did, and like a parent, I kept closing my ears and eyes to it till finally I could close them no more. And one night when she was 17, I had to help her up the stairs, and she was crying and sitting on the edge of my bed and said, Dad, I can't quit drinking. No way. I... And what did I do? You know, 13 years in the program, within the program, no great people, you know, sponsored beautifully in Little Rock. I acted like a parent. I said, let me tell you what you're going to do. If I have to tie you to that bed in there, and if I have to lock that door, and I'm going out and I'm going to get you two sponsors, and you're going to a meeting every night of the week, and you're going to do this, and you're going to, you're going to get, so yes, you can quit drinking. How does that sound like? <laughs> that sounds like an Al-Anon. It ain't an Al-Anon. Really? Really? Next morning, I still had that same idea, and I called this wonderful woman that lived about a half a mile from us, Jewish lady, named Rosalie Ephron, and I'd worked with Rosalie for her two years in the program. I said, you get over here right now. You're going to be her first sponsor, and you're going to do this, and you're going to do that, and by God, this and that and the other, and she's going to do this, and here's how you're going to sponsor her. She said, get out of the house. She said, get out of the house. If you're there, your car's there. When I get there, I ain't coming in. I'm not coming in. You just get out of the house. You're acting like a parent, not a 13-year-old member of Alcoholics Anonymous that's supposed to be within the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Rosalie came in and took over. I got out of the house, and I paced, and I drove, and I said, she can't handle this alone, you know. <laughs> I think, uh, I think it was God's will. I really do. I, I think it was God's will that got me out of that sponsorship situation. And I think it was also God's will that he said, stay away. He said, don't you guide her. She can get guidance from other people. And, and it was a little rocky at first, but then afterward, Judy got into this thing. Well, you got eight years now, seven years? Seven years. That's a miracle. That kid at 17 years of age, and I used to tell 17-year-old kids when they came into the program, go out and drink some more. You hadn't had enough problems, really. You hadn't had enough problems. Go out and drink some more. Because we didn't know what to do with them then, was what it was. And then I look down here and I see Donna. Lives in my apartment complex. My, She's from Little Rock here. 17? Yeah. Got a few months in this program now. Then I look out there and I see Dick Connor. 
It's got 35 years in this program. Went through the Little Rock approach plan when it was an approach plan. My golly, they took your money and your name and they took your life and your soul and they said, you are ours now and you will do precisely as we tell you or go on back to Augusta. And Dick chose to stay. And I'm, I'm very fortunate that, uh, incidentally, uh, Robert and Margaret, are we ready? Okay, okay. Hang in with me. Hang in. Thanks, babe. Thanks. Uh, Jake, we go get some sawdust now and pour on the floor. We're going to have a camp meeting. <laughs> I was at a meeting the other night, and a young fellow by the name of Wade, everybody from Little Rock knows who I'm talking about. Wade said, I don't want to hear any more of these drunkologues. I don't want to hear this. And I, don't want to, I want to hear only about the psychological part of this thing. What makes it happen and what happens? Oh, God. I said, Wade, all you can give and all I can give in this program is how it was, what happened, and how it is now. I have no panaceas, no miracle cures for alcoholism. I'm no therapist. You, hey, there is a voice from somewhere. Where'd that come from? <laughs> it said, hurry up, I think, is what it said. I don't know anything about alcoholism. And the longer I'm within this program, the less I know about it. All I know is how it was, what happened, and how it is now, and that's all I can do, one alcoholic to another, is tell you my story. And perhaps, just perhaps, maybe something gets gets over. I don't know. I really don't know. Jack laid it on us beautifully last night. I really enjoyed that, Jack. And, and then George came up. And George is one of my favorites. George is a disciplined member of Alcoholics Anonymous around here. Am I being charitable, George? <laughs> Disciplined member. He's a dandy. And I'm in my 22nd year in this program by the grace of a magnificent and loving God, and my name is Tag Christian, and I'm an alcoholic. And I thought I'd pass that on to you. And as, as Jack said last night, that may not impress you, but it impresses the hell out of me, because when I first was carried into my sponsor's office, I couldn't have made 21 minutes without a drink of alcohol, much less 21 years. 21 years would have, oh, I would have laughed in your face. 21 days would have been impossible. 21 hours was, was a daydream, a fantasy at that point. But how it was, was that I was born in Humphrey, Arkansas. You know where Humphrey is, 10 miles below Stuttgart. My dad owned a mercantile store there in Humphrey. And we did pretty good. Until the Depression came along, we had to move to Little Rock. And the first drink of whiskey I ever took was when I was 12 years old. And I had double pneumonia. I was laying there on the bed, nightmares and chills and 106 degrees fever. And the doctor said, there's no hope for it. And they brought in another Jewish doctor. His name was Strauss. Boy, my mother said, I'm through with these others. Let's bring another one in here. And he came in. The first thing he did, he said, go out and get some mustard plasters. We're going to get this man's fever down, get some wet sheets, get some aspirin, and get a hot toddy. Hot toddy. You know what a hot toddy is, don't you? Most of you do. It's whiskey, and it's hot water, and it's a little sugar, and a little lemon, and it's the foulest tasting stuff in the world. And my mother gave that to me, and that's the first drink of whiskey I ever had in my life. My dad used to make home brew, and I'd sip a little of his home brew back during Prohibition. But I almost threw it up. It was so bad. But then that warmth got down there about halfway. And then it got all the way. And then I, I wasn't having chills and nightmares anymore. And I wasn't having, didn't care if I had fever anymore. Didn't really, didn't matter. And, and by golly, a new thing had happened in my life. And I didn't care. And I said, give me another. And they gave me another. And I got well. Do you believe that? It was the whiskey's fault. I got well. And I think I pursued the miracle of that drink for the rest of my drinking life. I pursued this thing. I said, I want that same magnificent feeling 
that I got when that thing went down. Boy, just barely got it down, but when it got there, remember? I don't know if y'all had the same feeling as I did, but it did. And early in my drinking career in college, and I, I'd drink beer, and I'd, I, we'd have parties on Friday and Saturday night, and I noticed that I was the only one that was laying on the floor at night when the others were going to the restaurant to eat breakfast about 2 o'clock. And I was the only one passed out, and they thought I was a good drinker. There was something wrong with me at that point. And I just thought I was just a good drinker, that's all. And I, I was a square root drinker at that time. If one drink does this much for me, two drinks, twice as good. Four drinks, four times better. Eight drinks, eight times better. That's a square root drinker. That's an alcoholic drinker. Everybody used to pat me on the back. Boy, Tag, you really laid it in last night, did you? Yeah, man, I sure did. Suffering. Suffering. Not going to do that anymore until next week. But I got through it. I got back to Little Rock. I got an old job, and I played around, and I married a Quaker girl. I wanted some of the innocence she had, and she wanted some of the playboyishness I had, and those opposites mix and attract, but they never stay together that I've seen. It lasted 14 years through three fine children. Got a divorce on October the 23rd. Oh, God, will I never forget it. October 23rd, 1963. The worst thing in my life. The start of the worst things in my life. And I thought it was freedom at that time. No longer do I have to hide those bottles anymore from this woman. And incidentally, this woman had started, before we got divorced, she had started going to Al-Anon. Do you all know what Al-Anon is? I hated that bunch of broads, I'll tell you. I hated them. They were screwing up my marriage of 14 years, for one thing. My wife no longer came home and wrung her hands and said, Oh, God, what are we going to do now? When are you going to quit drinking? And she quit pouring out my beer and my whiskey. She said, you don't have to hide it anymore. Put it on the counter. That's all right. The kids and I are going out to show. Didn't care anymore. I hated that group of people. She put those pamphlets on my, my nightstand when I'd pass out in bed. You know, <laughs> said, you two can quit drinking. I said, I don't need these things. What are you doing to me? One of my business associates or friends may come in here and see one of those pamphlets and think I'm alcoholic. She said, they know you're alcoholic, and everybody else does. You're the only one who doesn't. Ah, couldn't handle that. Couldn't handle it. The stigma, the terrible shame on my name would be too much. That cannot be that I am alcoholic. If you had my problems and my job and my family and all the worries and all the woes, you'd drink too. Sound familiar? You bet. You betcha. And I drank. And I no longer could go to sleep without drinking anymore. Had that problem for five years. I tried it a number of times. Go to sleep without drinking. And I'd lay there and I'd shiver and I'd chill and I'd nightmare and I'd sweat the sheets out. And your problems at three o'clock in the morning when you can't do anything about them become multiplied. The problem of just getting out and making calls on dealers becomes a, a horror story at three o'clock in the morning. It magnifies itself to me. So I said, I'm not going to put myself through this anymore. I am going to drink every night so that I can go to sleep, so that I can wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning and instead of dreaming about these horrible nightmares that are going to happen to me in the future. Boy, and I had the future in the palm of my hand. I was really running my life. I'll just reach down and take some more whiskey and I'll go back to sleep. And that was my life. And that was my life. I traveled, fortunately. I couldn't do that at home until that wife of mine got in Al-Anon. And then they'd sort of laugh at me. I'd be laying there fast out. The kids would laugh at me, you know. I think they got an Alateen. There wasn't even any Alateen in Arkansas then. And they, but they had their own Alateen. They sort of laughed at me. And I lost everything lost the family, and I thought that was the greatest misfortune man could have, the degradation of losing a family, losing your 
I didn't have any more friends left. Didn't have any money. My God, I spent it all. Crazy things. Alcoholic things. Buying a new car when I didn't even have the old one anywhere near paid for, and it was in perfect shape, but needed a new car. Things of that nature. Buying a $300 suit when a $69.95 and would have looked just as good. Alcoholic things. So, October of 63, the divorce, and all that divorce did was send me off to a, an apartment of my own where I could put my bottle out on the counter and I could drink when and where and how much and how often I wanted to. And do you know what that did to me? That speeded up my entrance into Alcoholics Anonymous is what it did to me. Because after four or five stints in the hospital with pneumonia, they called it, and flu, they called it, and uh, malnutrition, they called it. And Tag, you're going to have to stop worrying. You're just you're just worrying yourself sick, you know, in the hospital, getting shots, detoxing. Finally, the last time they're standing over me, and my mother and father are standing there, and my daughters, my son, they said he's not going to last through the night, Miss Christian. He's just not going to make it. And I looked up and I said, the hell I'm not. I'm going to make it. You just don't know. There's nothing wrong with me. Just let me out of here. He had put me in there and he said, I don't think I can get you to the hospital in time. The doctor did. I said, yes, you can. Now, I've got to go to my apartment to pick up some pajamas and things like that. The whiskey was back at my apartment. I knew that's all I needed. Just give me the whiskey. But he got me, put me in his Volkswagen, ran me to the to the hospital, they got me in there and they put those things in my arm and those tubes down my nose. Have you all ever had that? Oh, God, you're looking forward to something then if you've never had that. That tube all the way down your nose into your chest cavity to pick out the poisons in your system as they put this glucose into your arm. And I didn't like that situation, so I'd jerk out the glucose thing out of my arm and I'd pull that thing out of my nose. And that was horror, folks. That was horror. Until finally the ultimate degradation when they strap you down. When they strap you down totally and put the needle back in your arm, trying to save your miserable life, and put that tube back down in me, and I'm begging for water, I'm dehydrating, and I'm looking up, and in that glucose bottle there are cockroaches swimming around, all in that glucose bottle. Now, mind you, this was a, this was a very minor hospital, Nancy, in... in in Little Rock, St. Vincent's, and I accused those people of everything. Unsanitary conditions. Where'd you get this glucose? Look at those cockroaches in there. What are you doing to me? They're going into my bloodstream. And those nurses would look up, boy, and they'd get down by my face and say, no, sir, Mr. Christian, no, there's no cock. It looks like it. That's just the way the light's shining down on me. That didn't pacify me, though, and they kept shooting me with something to try to get me out. It took about eight shots of something, they told me, and five days later I wake up and there my family crying and me saying, get out of here, and then two weeks later I wake up after nightmares and what have you, and there's my preacher laying this, sitting there on the edge of the bed, said, hey, you're supposed to have been dead a few days ago. I think we better thank something that you're here. Dr. Adams there, Presbyterian Church. I said, don't bother. Isn't that brilliant? Come right out of the gates of death. And I'm telling this preacher who's there saying, we want to thank something for keeping you alive. And I said, don't bother. I'm all right. I'm going to whip this thing. Everything's fine. Alcoholic. Insane. And I got out of the hospital miraculously, and I blamed it on me. I said, see, I'm strong. I can handle this stuff got out, went, got fired by my job, immediately went home and said, well, the doctor told me to recuperate, so how does a good alcoholic recuperate? I went to the whiskey store and I bought two-fifths of whiskey. That's how you recuperate, out of death's door. And I started drinking. And I knew at that point, I knew inalterably, there was absolutely no way I could stop drinking whiskey once I started. No way. So I said, there's no way I can stop drinking, period. I've lost family, money, friends, self-respect, jobs. I don't have anything. So I might as well. 
I do not have the strength. I don't have the character to rebuild. I had screwed up my personal life so badly by running it myself. I did not have the strength, the character, the purpose to rebuild. I cannot go through that again, so I'm going to take myself out of this life. And I'm on the seventh floor of Plaza Towers there in Little Rock, so I said, I'll just jump out the window. And I looked out that window. I said, no, that would be too degrading and it would hurt. <laughs> There'd be too much horror on the way down. And then, then I, I, I said, okay, I'll stick my head in the oven. Never had used that oven. I didn't know what it was like. Stick my head in the oven and turn the gas on, but it was an electric range, and I was afraid it might burn me. So, so I, I, I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I said, well, I'll take, I've got, got about 20 Anison here. I'll take them. But then I had read somewhere, I thought, that it took 50 or 60 to get you. So I, I said, no, I can't do that. So what's the best way to do it? Yeah, drink yourself out. If I have to fill this apartment full of whiskey, beg, bar, or steal it, I'll drink myself out of this thing. I'll wake up and drink, wake up and drink, wake up and drink until I just don't wake up anymore. That seemed like the easy way to go. It really did. So I went on with that plan. <laughs> and I got two weeks down the road with it, and I had the whiskey and everything, and I was drinking. And all of a sudden, the door of my apartment opened. I had locked it. I had taken the phone off the hook. I was very serious about my fate. And in walked my mother and my father and my... Eleven-year-old daughter, Kathy, not her. And in they walked, and you can imagine the filth. You can imagine the horror of that little apartment. I haven't been able to get off the bed now for about a week. You can imagine what it looked like and what I looked like and what I smell like and the horror. And they were just, they stood there in amazement. They said, my God, son, what are you doing to yourself? And Kathy sat on the bed, and she grabbed my hand and said, Oh, Dad, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know, Kathy. I really don't know. I said, I've lost everything. I've lost the best family in the world. I, I can't get a job. I've, I've lost all the money I ever had. I have no self-respect. I have no friends. And I don't know what I'm going to do, and I'm an alcoholic. And, folks, it was the first time I had ever broadcasted, the very first time I had ever mouthed the words, I'm an alcoholic. This was the first of many spiritual experiences. The very first. I stopped crying. I stopped shaking. I felt like a great load had come off. I sat up in the bed. And my folks stood back. They couldn't get close to me. They said, well, son, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. I really don't know at this point what I'm going to do. Why don't you send my brother-in-law over tomorrow morning? Maybe we can figure something out. But right now, I want to do some thinking. With a fairly clear head, I don't understand it. I do now, but I didn't then. And they left. Boy, they ran out of there. And my brother-in-law hit that place about 8 o'clock the next morning. He said, listen, we did some talking about you last night. <laughs> oh, you did? Yes. We have the money to keep you in whiskey for the rest of your life. Now, it may be a short time, but we have the money to keep you in whiskey for the rest of your life if that's the program that you want, if you can live by that. And that would be the ultimate. And I said, no, I can't do that, Harold. I can't do it. He said, well, what do you want to do? I said, I don't know. I heard there's a thing called Alcoholics Anonymous, and I had a an appointment with a guy named Walter Green here two years ago that I never did keep. I was trying to keep my wife, and I, I promised I'd go see Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, look in the book. Maybe he'll come see me. He looked in the book, and he called Walter Green. He said, well, my God, is he still alive? <laughs> Ran a realty company there across from the Heights Theater in Little Rock. He said, yeah, just barely. He said... Walter, can you get over here? This man's sick. Walter said, I can imagine how sick he is. He said, we've been watching him for two years, just waiting to put him in the casket. 
He said, he said, you think I'm coming over that stinking place? You're crazy. Is he cleanable? <laughs> and Harold said, well, I don't know. It's a big job, but we'll see. He said, bring him over here if you can get him clean. Took three and a half hours in and out of that tub trying to shave me, trying to bathe me, trying to find clean clothes. And they found clean clothes. And he carried me out to the elevator, and he carried me into his car, shaking and crying, not knowing, scared to death. And he took me across from the Heights Theater, and there was this office that said, Walter Green Realty Company. And he took me up those stairs, and I know he'd like to have just thrown me in there. Walked in... And he had an office about, about, oh, 10 by 12, 10 by 15. He had chairs around the wall, and he had three desks. And had a secretary and a sales manager and a salesman, and there were a bunch of crazies sitting around the wall. <laughs> Girls and boys, men and women, who were drinking coffee, laughing and telling jokes and enjoying life. I said, nobody does this anymore, so they're crazy. Bunch of crazies. I knew half of them. I hadn't seen them in years. Walked in there. Hey, Tay. Yeah. How are you? Man, you look terrible. Come on in. <laughs> His secretary was named Emma Lou, not the, the one we know now. She said, Tag, I hadn't seen you since high school. You looked better then. I said, yeah. She said, come on in here, boy. We're going to have a time. Walter came out of that office and said, you meet all these people? They're crazy, Tag. I said, I know, I know, I know. He said, come on in my office. He said, Harold, I got him. Did you pack his clothes? Harold said, yeah, here they are. About a half suitcase full of old clothes. and Threw them in the office. Walter said, I got him, Harold. And he did. He took me in that office, and I'm sitting there shaking like a leaf and crying, and I didn't know what was going on. He said, Tag, he said, been waiting on you two years. He said, now I want you to find some sort of honesty. I know you haven't had a lot of that in the last few years. He said, but try to tell me the truth and tell me all about yourself. I'll listen, I promise. And nobody had offered to do that in a long time. They didn't want to hear anything I had to say because it was insanity. So Walter sat there and listened. And I did. I, I don't know how it happened. I think this was the second, second spiritual experience. But I found some honesty. I don't know where it was, and I told him. And I told him how I drank and how I did this and how I'd lost a family. And I'd done this and I'd done that and I'd done the other. I said, there ain't anybody like me, Walter. I'm crazy. Nobody does these things. No human being, no sensible. I'm crazy, Walter. You're going to have to lock me up and I can't quit drinking. There's not a way in the world I can quit drinking. He said, you think you're pretty bad, don't you? I said, yes, sir. I called him, sir. You betcha. Scared to death. He said, now let me tell you about me. And all of a sudden, he started talking. And he started rolling his story out. And by God, it was the same as mine. And I started shaking my head. And I said, you, you didn't do that, too. What? You did? When you started drinking, you couldn't stop until you passed out? What? You did that, too? I said, one of those people out there in that office did that, too. They're crazy, Tay. Said they did it too. They're insane. See my secretary? She did it too. See my sales manager? He did it too. Just like you did. Maybe the circumstances were a little different, but we did it. Just like you. I said, but I can't quit drinking, Walter. I can't quit drinking. He said, see that man out there? He's got eight months. He said the same thing when he sat in here. <coughs> see my secretary? She's got a year. She was the worst case I ever saw in my life. See my sales manager, he's got six months. See all those people, he's got 18 months, he's got two years, he's got a year and a half. They all said the same thing. Now, what's he done to me? At the very first, he's telling me at this point, you're not alone anymore. You're not out. Remember who first said that? Marty Mann. Marty said that to us. She went back to her people. At high watch, and she said, we're not alone anymore. There's somebody else out there. And Walter's telling me, Tag, you're not alone anymore. We're just like you. What a great revelation this was.
I had no idea. He says, I know you can't quit drinking, Tag. I know you can't quit drinking. He said, we have a plan. He said, let's review your life just one more time. He said, you got a family? I said, no, sir, I lost the best family in the world. Drank it up. That said, that's great. Just happy that I'd lost my family. He said, you got any, uh, you got a job? Uh, oh, no, sir, I lost the best job in town, boy. Listen, I'm a salesman, and that was the best sales job in Arkansas. He said, marvelous. Just delighted that I didn't have a job. You got any money, Tag? I said, no, sir, I don't have any money, Mr. Green. I, I, I owe everybody in town. I got hot checks at the whiskey store. I said, I, I owe past child support. I, I don't have any money, Walter. He said, oh, this is great. I thought he was going into elation there for a second. <laughs> Magnificent, he said. I said, I don't understand. With all my miseries and everything, you're excited. You're happy about my miseries. He said, let me tell you why I'm happy. He said, first, you don't have a family. Nobody's going to be bugging you when you go home tonight. When are you going to do this? When are you going to pay these bills? When are you going to get the groceries for us? When are you going to do that? Take us to the zoo. Take us to the show. Quit that drinking. Nobody's going to be doing that tonight to you. You're going back to you. Yeah, I'm going to try to get you in the dormitory, but you're going to a place where they understand you too. He said, so you're not going to have that worry. He said, you had not got a job. He said, tag... You don't have the pressure of a job. Nobody's disturbing you, telling you you've got to go out and sell so much today. Don't have that pressure. He said, and besides, you couldn't, you don't even have the strength to punch a time clock. He said, you couldn't sweep my floors for $5 an hour. He said, you'd fall flat on your face here. So you can't handle a job, any job. Yeah, come think of it, you're right. I can't handle a job. Okay, so that's good, isn't it? I said, I guess if you say so. He said, and you don't have any money, Tag. I said, you're right, sir. I don't have any money. Oh, everybody in town. <laughs> Cry. He said, he said, let me tell you something. There are two things that are going to get you drunk in Alcoholics Anonymous. The first one is money, the abundance of, a lot of it. going to get you drunk. And the second thing is alcoholic women, and I want you to stay away from both of them. <laughs> both of them. I didn't understand that because when I staggered into that thing, what would fix me better than anything? Maybe about $30,000 and a beautiful, warm lady. And I'd move to San Diego and start life over again, or Hawaii or somewhere like that. And he's telling me I can't do that. That that's my problem, is when I get money and somebody else that doesn't know how to handle life, that I'm in trouble. I'm in deep trouble. And I took what he said on faith, because I sure as heck didn't believe him. <laughs> I didn't believe him. He said, what's the most important thing in your life, Tag? I said, whiskey. Alcohol. Absolutely, he said. We check one up for you. That's the right answer. He said, Tag, we have a plan. He said, but in the near future, you're going to want alcohol. He said, when you staggered in here, they didn't close the whiskey stores, Tag. They're still out there. They didn't declare a moratorium. The Volstead Act has not come back into being. There's not prohibition, so there's still whiskey out there. And I don't want you going and buying it. He said, get it from me. And he opened his drawer, and there was all kinds of whiskeys and gins and scotches. And he said, I promise you, Tag, you are not going to sit here and go into DT's and die in my office. He said, if you have to have whiskey, I promise you I won't argue with you. I'll give it to you. What's he done for me? First, he's told me I'm not alone anymore. I'm not the only crazy person out there. Second, he's not taking my life away from me. Third, he said, do you think you can keep from taking a drink of whiskey for one day? I said, Walter, do I have to quit drinking forever? He said, if you can tell me when your forever is, I'll tell you how long you have to quit drinking. Are you going to walk out of here mad and fall down the steps and get hit by a car? Is that your forever? Are you going to have a heart attack right here and is that your forever? How long are you going to live, Tag? I said, I don't know, Walter. Who can say? He said, exactly. 
do you think you can keep from taking a drink of whiskey for one day? I said, he said, think about it now. That's important. I said, you bet it is because I don't think I can. He said, would you like to try? I said, you bet. Here this man has offered me. He's already done two things. He's told me I'm not alone anymore. He's, pro he's shown me this, that those people can do it. And the second thing is, he's not taking my whiskey away, my life away from me. And he's saying, now, can you just simply not take a drink for 24 hours? He's, I said, well, I don't know. He said, I want you to stay here in this office. I want you to talk to those people out there today. He said, I'll try to get you in the dormitory. Now, I thought the dormitory was a rubber room where they just locked you in there and took all your clothes away from you and you just sweated for two weeks. I thought that's what AA was, you know. It wasn't. It was love. Pure and simple. It was love. And Walter Green and that group sat there and they listened to me cry and beg and plead and sweat. Watch me go through these machinations and these hallucinations and they they were patient with me. They said, hang in, Tag, it'll get better. I didn't believe them, but I hung in for that one day. He took me home with him that night. They couldn't get a hamburger down me or a, or a milkshake. And I was I, all I was doing was drinking water. I was dehydrating. But there was, some, there was an enthusiasm there. I don't know what it was. He couldn't get me in the dormitory. And Walter, Walter, he and his lovely wife, Jackie, talked to me that night. And my co-sponsor, Jim Finley, and his wife, Dot, they were there. And they talked to me. And they listened to everything I had to say. And they brought me a towel to wipe the sweat off. And they kept bringing me water and kept telling me to hang in. We have a plan, Tag. We have a way. But the only thing you want to worry about right now is just don't take a drink right now. That's all. Today, for the next ten minutes, whatever it is, let's don't do that. Couldn't get me in the dormitory. Took me home that night at 12 o'clock because the whiskey store was closed. Took me home. I said, but there's whiskey in that apartment, that miserable apartment. I said, no, your daughter Kathy's been over and cleaned it all out. She had. And I went home with an enthusiasm that night, and he put me in bed. He said, I'll pick you up at 8.30 tomorrow morning. Try not to drink any whiskey, will you, Tag? I said, okay. Had an enthusiasm, had an excitement that I hadn't had in years. Never have quit drinking. Never have quit. In 21 and a half years, I have never quit drinking. I just didn't drink today. Isn't that amazing? Didn't have to quit. He came and rapped on my door at 8.30 the next morning. I was never so happy to see anybody in my life. Did you drink? No, sir, I didn't. Shook hands with me. Come on with me. Took me back to that office. There were those crazies sitting around the office again. And that secretary and that sales manager and that salesman helped me up those stairs into his office and says, Hey, everybody, listen up. I said, Tag made a day. Made a day. Boy, they started clapping. They came over and they put their arms around me. They hugged me. Shook hands with me. Great going, Tag. Great going. I hadn't had that kind of compassion or love. I couldn't give these people anything. I didn't have a thing to give these people. Dead broke. Couldn't even give them a smile. All I could give them was a hard time and a hard story. And here they were loving me for some odd, strange, unseen reason. And I couldn't understand it. And Walter took me into his office, and I was crying like a baby. He said, you like that, huh? I said, yes, sir. He said, you won't try for 24 more? I said, you bet you. You bet you. Will you help me? He said, you bet. And from there on, it became a series of miracles, a series of spiritual experiences, spiritual delights, physical delights, Bad decisions, good decisions, but always with the uppermost thing in your mind, don't drink whiskey today, the first few days. Just not today. We'll try it tomorrow, Tag. We'll do it tomorrow. Let's don't do it today. When I'd want it pretty badly. And all those people helping. We had three, four meetings in Little Rock at that time. We had two at 120 and a half, and we had two at Cosmopolitan, and had one at Rose City. And I went to those four meetings. We had one at 6 o'clock in the morning at the dormitory, and I went to those meetings. <clears throat> we got about 200 a week in Little Rock now. 
we got the finest facility in the United States there in Little Rock on Wall Street. We're getting young people in there. I got a few more minutes, had not I? Let me tell you some stories. And he and his wife that first night gave me the book Alcoholics Anonymous, and she signed it. She put her name right on the top there. It said Jacqueline Green, February the 4th, 1965. She said, Tag, that's your dry date, and I never want to have to change that date. I didn't understand. I said, okay, Jackie. I told them all, okay, I'll do whatever you say. I wanted what they had. I wanted what those people had, the happy, crazy people. I wanted what they had because I had no other alternates. I was at Bill Wilson's deflation at depth, total deflation. And by golly, they gave me the book Alcoholics Anonymous. Walter said, try reading this thing. And he, he went over every chapter with me. I didn't understand it. I didn't understand it. He said, the most important thing is you don't drink whiskey today. He said, but well, I want you to start reading that. And they gave me a list of 38 names of alcoholics there in Little Rock. He said, this is your worksheet. I said, what's that? He said, you are to call everyone on this worksheet over a series of days and weeks. You are to go to their place or at their convenience, and you are to hear their story. And you are to keep your mouth shut. And you are to sit in the back of the room at meetings, and you are not to say a word. You are to listen. And I didn't do that. But... <laughs> Walter. God, he was good. But he had an addiction. He had an addiction to the races. And this was February, and he went to racing, and he pointed Jim Finley, my co-sponsor, who was his sales manager at that time. <coughs> I got through that list of people in about 30 days. I'd call them and I'd say, my name's Tag Christian and my sponsor's Walter Green and I'm an alcoholic. And sir, at your convenience, I need to hear your story. And boy, not a one of them said, I ain't got time. I ain't time for you, boy. They all said, where are you? How soon can you get here? I'll come get you. I'll meet you at the meeting tonight. At your convenience. I said, no, sir, it's your convenience. And no, ma'am, it's your convenience. And by golly, I saw those people. And the last one on my list was Judge Arch Campbell. Judge Arch Campbell was the county judge of Pulaski County, perhaps the biggest political figure in Arkansas at that time. And Judge Arch Campbell was quite a strange person. Judge Arch Campbell had about 20 years of sobriety at that point. And Judge Arch Campbell was within the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And Judge Arch Campbell liked purple. The county trucks were painted purple. His office was painted purple. He alcoholic. And his, his secretary wore purple. Everything was purple. And I was scared to death of him. He was the last person on my list. And Walter kept saying, when are you going to call Arch Campbell? I said, well, he's too busy for me, Walter. I have called. I lied. He said, you are to call right now. I said, no, sir. I'm not going to call. He said, you'll get drunk. I said, okay. Didn't want to get drunk. He threatened me. So I got on the telephone. I said, Judge Campbell isn't there, is he? Yes, he is. Who's calling? <laughs> I'm a salesman, y'all. Isn't that the great way to sell? And Judge said, yes, he's here. And who is this? I said, ma'am, my name is Tag Christian. And she said, are you in the fellowship? I said, yes, ma'am, I'm trying to be. She said, just a second. And Judge Campbell says, who is this? I said, this is Tag Christian. Sir, and I know you don't have time to see me. I'm an alcoholic, and Walter Green's my sponsor, and you're on my worksheet. He said, what are you doing right now? I said, well, sir, I'm at Walter's office. He said, can you drive a car? Can you get a cab? I'll pay for the cab down here. I said, no, sir, I have a car. He said, get Walter or somebody to bring you down now. Ten o'clock in the morning. I drove my car down to Judge Campbell's office there at the county courthouse. And I was escorted into his office, and there were more crazies sitting around his office here. But these were super crazies because they were somber. They weren't. They had appointments with Judge Campbell. They probably had for weeks. The secretary said, are you Mr. Christian? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, folks, talking to all those other crazies, said, I know you've had appointments for some time, but this is, Judge Campbell is going to be indisposed for about the next three hours. 
She said, you'll just have to come back later. I'm sorry. Boy, you talk about some mad people. Important people in county government and in business and everything else. Ah, they grumbled, but they left. Judge Clamel came out of that office and said, get in here. I went in there. He ordered up sandwiches for lunch for us both. And I listened for two and a half hours to this man who knew what first things first were. With each of us, the first thing is our alcoholic problem. And he knew I had an alcoholic problem, and the judge knew he had an alcoholic problem, and he knew by one-on-one, -on -one, one alcoholic to another, we solve our problem, or we keep from drinking. And Judge Campbell told me his story. And I knew the meaning of first things first, at that, of prioritizing your life at that meeting. And I came back, and I had an experience, another spiritual experience. And I came back, and I knew what my first thing first was. And I was to be introduced into the Cosmopolitan group two nights later. I had done my fourth step. My sponsor threatened me again. I didn't want to do that fourth step. No, sir. Not going to do that fourth step. I'm just not ready. He said, the hell you're not. He said, you do it or you'll get drunk, and I'm not introducing you into this group if you don't. That was the ultimate. I had to do it, so I did it brought the first one to him. It was one page long. He tore it up. He said, now get back and get honest. He said, tell me everything. I want to know it. And I wrote 18 typewritten pages front and back. He said, now you're getting sober. He read it, and we talked about it, and I took my fifth step with him that night, too. It took us five hours, and he took his over again with me. This is love. And he said, you're to be introduced into the group of Alcoholics Anonymous next Tuesday. Jim Finley will introduce you, your co-sponsor. So we got to that meeting that night, and I'm dressed, man, I had a tie on, a coat. They're going to introduce me, and I'm going to get to say something at last. <laughs> got me up there. And I'm sitting there, and it's 8 o'clock. No Jim Finley. Walter's sitting there looking at me, sort of funny. He said, I said, where's Jim? Where's Jim? Well, why isn't he here? He said, Taggy's drunk. I said, what? I just collapsed. Here's my co-sponsor, a guy that knew more about Alcoholics Anonymous than anybody I ever saw. Here's a guy that I loved and I leaned on. If I'd have known he was getting drunk, I'd have probably gotten drunk with him. Walter said, that's why I didn't tell you. He got drunk. When he knew he had to give you to the group tonight, he got drunk, Tag. That taught me another lesson. I can't keep this thing unless I give it to somebody else. I cannot do it continually. Jim Finley never got this program. You Memphis people might know him. He died about three years ago over there. He had a year of sobriety. I was delighted to hear this. Great person. Great, marvelous person. Great experience in my life. Give me another five minutes here. Now I'll tell you another experience. It's a beautiful experience. Maybe a couple of them. I was in the program for 60 days. And it's August the 9th. I mean, it's April the 9th, 1965. And the phone rings in Walter's office. And somebody from Rogers, Arkansas is calling Walter Green. Yeah, Doc, how you doing? Fine. <coughs> Said, we got this guy up here, Walter. And he's pretty bad shape, and we'd like for him to go through the Little Rock approach plan. Walter says, that means y'all can't do anything with him up there. Is that right? <laughs> he said, yeah. said, he's hopeless, Walter. We're putting him on the bus with two cans of beer, and you pick him off of the bus and put him in the dormitory and send him through the Little Rock approach plan. Walter said, okay. And there was Bill Mann, and there was Walter, and there was me in his office at that time, and there was two or three others. And we went down and we pulled this poor, miserable person off that bus without those two cans of beer, of course. He'd already gone through them. And he was worse looking than I was. A lot worse looking than I was, I thought. <laughs> he was terrible. God, he was awful. Stunk. Bad. His name's Joe Hall. I'll tell you who he is. His name's Joe Hall. We took Joe Hall. You. Remember this name. We took Joe Hall out to the Cosmopolitan meeting, and Joe sat there and shook and cried all during the meeting. I'm trying to hold him down, sitting right next to him. 
And after the meeting, Walter said, I'm going to try to get him in the dormitory. Tried to get him in the dormitory. Couldn't get him in the dormitory. Uh-oh. What are we going to do with this baby? Let him sleep here at the Cosmopolitan Club on the couch over there or something. Walter said, no, we don't treat anybody like that. We'll get him a sponsor. <laughs> they started leaving about this point. Bill Mann went this way. i got to go to Florida. Jim Porter went this way and said, I can't stay any longer. i got to go. Bye, y'all. Walter looked at me. I was the last one left, Miss poor shaking cat there, and he said, he's yours. I said, what? I got 60 days of sobriety, and you're going to turn a man's life over to me? I don't know what to do. What am I going to do? Panic about like I did with Judy. About like I did with Judy. He said, I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to do precisely as we did to you. You remember anything? I said, well, yeah. First thing you do is take all his money. What? Joe handed us $35, crying, sweating. That's all he had. said, now you take him downtown and you put him in a room in the house downtown, close to the dormitory, if you can find one. And I started going through the book and I found a room in the house, $5 a week. You can imagine how nice that room in the house was. But it was a half mile from a dormitory. So I took him down there, and I put him in bed. I tucked him in, and I said, if you drink, I'll kill you. Because <laughs> if that man had drunk, I would have drunk too. That was how serious I was about it. I clung to that man for dear life. He clung to me. Thank God he wanted it more than I wanted to give it to him. All right. He wouldn't be alive today, neither would I. We went to every meeting that was ever known, and we stayed in my apartment till 11 and 12 o'clock every night, and I'd drive him back to that filthy room in the house, and he'd go to that dormitory the next morning at 6 o'clock, and he'd walk to see the people on his interview list when I couldn't give him my car. That's how bad this man wanted it. And he did everything. He wrote his fourth step. I still got that fourth step, and I review it every now and then. I look for humility, and I look at that fourth step. And 30 days later, here's a new man. Here's a man that's getting whole again. And I call his wife and I say, Dee, I know you don't want any part of him. I said, come on down, please. Pick him up. He's ready. He seems like he wants what we have. He's a new person. I'm not coming down there. I don't want Joe Hall anymore. I don't want any part of him. I said, please. I got you a room at the downtowner inn tonight. Now, you and I and Joe go to dinner. Then if you and Joe don't want to stay together, that's all right. I'll send you back home. But I've got a room. She came down. We had dinner. And she saw the change in that man. And I threw him in that room together that night. <laughs> and I told him. The doctor had told him months back that they couldn't have any more children. They had one child named Tommy Joe. And they couldn't have any more children because <laughs> there's something wrong with Joe. Well, hell, we knew there was something wrong with Joe. <laughs> so, <coughs> but they got in that room that night and they conceived Gina. God love her. Last time I saw her, she was in Gateway at Fort Smith. Like father, like daughter. God love her. But they had their first AA child. And then, then 12 months later, they had their second AA child. Damn, if it doesn't work, doesn't it? Something works. <laughs> Joe Hall is a rock in Rogers, Arkansas. Joe Hall went up there and got him another sponsor. I told him to. I said, I can't come up there, Joe. But I want to hear from you about once a week. And we'd call and talk. They got this fellow Doc up there at Rogers. And about six months later, about I keep in touch with Joe every week. And Joe's sober and going to meetings and sponsoring and doing everything right, you know. About six months later, here came Joe through Little Rock. About 12.30 at night. And he called me from the outskirts of town. He said, uh, hey. I said, where in the hell are you? He said, I'm out the outskirts of town. I said, well, come on. Stay here tonight. No, Tad. I said, I've got Doc with me. I said, bring him, too. I want to meet and talk to Doc. I hear he's a great person. 
No, Tag, we can't do that. We're in sort of a hurry. I said, where in the world are you going? He said, well, we heard there was an old boy from Rogers down at El Dorado, Arkansas. that was having a lot of trouble, and they couldn't do anything with him. We thought we'd go down and give it a shot. You think there's no reward to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous when you see something like that? Thought we'd go down and give it a shot. Joe Hall's a rock. I sent him his 21st chip in April. He's still around. He's got emphysema. He's got a great business there in Rogers. Does a great thing. While I'm talking about rewards, when I was about eight years sober, I lived in Omaha, and I had a meeting in Sterling, Illinois, with a distributor there, and here came another guy from Chicago, and there was a bunch of us representatives, and we went out to dinner that night, and I sat with this guy from Chicago while he drank. He said, why don't you drink? And folks, I will drop my anonymity at the drop of a drink. Not at the, pre- not at the level of the press, radio, and media. No, uh-uh, that's for my own benefit. But when somebody asked that question, he said, you don't drink? I said, no, I don't drink. Not anymore, not today. What do you mean? And he was throwing one after another down. I said, well, I can't handle it. I'm an alcoholic. You one of those? You one of those? Did you go to AAA? I said, yeah. Went to AAA. He said, well, I have this brother. (laughs) And he drinks too much. Tell me all about it. Boy, did I unload on him. Did I unload on him. I say this. This is dated January the 30th, 1973. Mr. Tag Christian St. Louis, Missouri. Dear Tag, you may not remember me or the conversation we had in our dinner at Howard Johnson's restaurant in Rockford, Illinois, a few years ago. You were then with Philco and I was with Ampex, and we were doing a road show with Hardware Products Company. The important thing is that I never forgot that conversation and knew where to go for help when I finally decided to stop drinking about a year ago. You think there are no rewards to the program with Alcoholics Anonymous? This man's name Jim McClear. Jim's got now, this is 73. He's got 13 years of sobriety. I go to Chicago, I get hold of Jim. Jim comes within 200 miles of here, Jim gets hold of me. This is love. This is love, and I didn't have to do a thing for it. All I had to do was promise my sponsor I wouldn't take a drink that day. That's all. And the God of my understanding took over there. And that's the way it works, as far as I'm concerned. I'm not going to... I do four things. I'll finish this off with this. I do four things each day. I try to do four things each day. I met Paul Keebler, and Paul introduced me to the absolutes. When this thing was formed in 1935, we didn't have a big book or 12 and 12 or anything like that. We didn't have any pamphlets. We had the Oxford group, we had the King James Bible, and we had the Sermon on the Mount by Emmett Fox. And we had the four absolutes from the Oxford group, which are the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous. Absolute honesty, absolute purity, absolute unselfishness, and absolute love. And Paul introduced me to the 11th step when I met him in St. Louis. And he told me about the absolutes. Those are the principles of this program. Only God is in the absolute, and we strive for those things. Absolute honesty, purity, unselfishness, and love. And I was at an 11-step meeting the other night. They said, how do you know when it's God's will? I said, it's pretty simple. Well, I have a criteria. When I'm in meditation and, and I make a decision, I apply the absolutes. Is it honest? Is it true or false? Is that decision true or false? Is it pure? Is it beautiful or bad? Okay. Is it unselfish? Is it good or bad? Is it for me or is it for somebody else? And does it incorporate love? And if I can answer those four in the, in the affirmative to those four criteria, then I know it's God's will. There is no way I can get around God's will. So I developed from the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and the absolutes of the old Oxford movement four things I do each day. The first thing when I hit that floor is I, I turn my life over to God. I certainly can't handle it. The God of my understanding. Please, God, if you'll take my life today, thank you. Second thing, 
I make a commitment, make a decision. I'm just not going to drink any alcohol today, and I've added cigarettes to that the last 18 months. And they promised me when I quit smoking, I wouldn't have any more bronchitis. They didn't. Here I got it. But that's all right. So I, I'm going to make a commitment today. I don't believe I'll drink any alcohol just this day. I had never quit. I'm just not going to drink it right now. Third thing, I'm not going to tell any lies this day. I'm going to try not to tell any lies this day. And that's hard because I'm a salesman. And that is terribly hard for me. And the fourth thing is, I'm going to try to tell somebody else about this magnificent life that's given me 21 years of beauty. Jake, I want to thank you. And Hardy, thank you all for listening to me. It's been a marvelous, marvelous meeting. And I hope you'll ask me back. Thank you. Thank you.